you know how everyone has the way they take their tea? Uh-huh. I'm a context tea guy, and some British people can't get their head around it. Mm. I don't have this uniform tea preference. Mm. I'm a context guy. I like to be informed by my environment. Oh, do you have a sugary tea every now and then? Yeah, every now and again. As a rarity, I call it a pudding tea. <laughs> <laughs> yes! That's a great idea. Most of the time not. I've been putting agave in my tea. Uh-huh. Oh, incredible. Much, mm. much softer than sugar. I treat coffee as a kind of drug slash treat mm-hmm. where I will employ different types of coffee, different levels of sugar, different amounts of milk, completely mm. depending on what I fancy. But but you're right. I am a prisoner of my tea habits. I got locked into yeah. a certain tea, fairly strong tea, brewed for at least one minute, oat milk. Got locked into that and I'm a prisoner. Mm. And I find people going, oh, how do you take your tea? As though it's just this one question you ask Mm. someone once. Mm. As mad as like, what do you have for dinner? Wow. Well, different things, different things. Oh, what's your dinner? Sorry, I eat different things on different days. I'm guilty of that. I will. Once I've, I won't ask, Mm. how do you take your tea? If I'm asking, if I'm making someone a brew for the first time, I'll be like, oh, how do you want your tea? And then I will take that as baseline. And I should. Yeah. And I have this. I have people go to you want a tea? Yeah, I want a tea. No follow-up question. Yeah. They go away. And then you're I get rude. a tea I wanted a week ago. Yeah, you're that's, rude. That's a different going, tea. You might be feeling sad. You might want a pudding tea for a pick-me-up. You've been on the well, bus Well, that's the problem. It. Yeah. It's because if, if I wanted a pudding tea on my first tea from an individual, mm. oh, they'll pudding shit. me and I've not even had my main... Because you can't undo that. You, yeah. you can pudding a thigh, but you can't unpudding a thigh. Oh, shit. You've got to be really careful then. Yeah. I've got to put salt on it just to <laughs> undo. <laughs> Add a bit of savoury, put some soy sauce in. (laughs) Henderson's relish. Welcome back to Mandatory Redistribution Party. I'm Jack Evans. And I'm Sean Morley. Are you hungry for Mandos? I hope so, because this is the Food Ep. And I'm hankering for a delicious bite. We're going to talk about how our relationship with food is shaped, some might say fucked, by market forces. How has stress brain money town distorted our relationship with acquiring, eating and paying for our beloved heaps of slop? Big thanks to everyone who shares our episodes on social media, those of you who have left us a review on iTunes and people who support our work on Patreon. We genuinely notice and appreciate it. And if you're feeling flush and want to pop us some quid on patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party, you can chow down on some extra content and feel a warm glow from the gratitude energy we'll be sending from our brains. Hello, did you order a Mando's? Yeah, is that extra crispy? Have you got the dips? Can you can you pay me please? Oh, wicked mate. It's time to chow down. Have you got, have you got my money? I have both been the person in a fast food restaurant car park eating the fast food in my car and seen it. Back when there used to be live gigs, 
and it's like the only thing that's open when you get back to your city. I'm fucking hungry. I came straight from day job, went and did a gig. Now I'm going to eat this bleak food. I don't know why, but I've never met a comedian with a pack up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It would, it would come off odd. Yeah. Like, it, a comedian no, should have a pack up. There isn't, yeah, you should have a packed lunch, but like it doesn't cross your mind because you'd have to probably sort it out at like fucking half seven in the morning for the night. You, you'll get the component elements of a packed lunch, but as a like a boots meal deal from a service station. Mm. But it, you'll never I, pack I, a lunch. Pack lunch have moved from being mm. like just this normal thing that you have yeah. at school or at work. Yeah, yeah. The only way it exists now is this quaint middle class thing called the picnic. <laughs> But it used to be like, just put some sarnies in a tin and then yeah. shut that tin and you can have that later. But now it's like, oh, very, very nice. Some, some jam sarnies. So you can lay out a little towel. Oh, and there's people who have like the most elaborate part lunches in the world where it's like, you've got, oh, it's some of last night's onion bhaji. And I've also got two tiny pizzas of Tupperware full of seeds and nuts. Which is, you yeah. Know. Oh, sorry. My, my girlfriend made for me. It's a bento box full of octopus shaped hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Which comedians should have, because that stuff's probably nice and nutritious. But for some reason, we're absolute rats and just wallow in filth when it comes to post gig food. And it's not even like the nice takeaway. Like, no. nice takeaways mm. shut at uh, 11 latest. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just junk. You know, Alan's fried chicken. So, Alan's fried. Do you know, do you know about Alan's fried chicken? No. Okay, so know Alan. the first KFC in Europe was opened in Preston. Mm -hmm. Alan was the guy who ran it. And he goes from running this one fried chicken shop in Preston to being the guy underneath the colonel or whatever. I assume even once Colonel Sanders dies, every new CEO of KFC is given that title. He runs like the European wing of KFC. He eventually split off in a faction from main KFC I can't remember the specifics, but they have the picture up in all the Allen's chick fried chicken restaurants of like Alan stood with the colonel and it like tells the story of this tale or whatever. And as far as I remember, it's something to do with gravy and KFC introducing some like packet gravy to, to, to cost cut and boost the profits. Whereas Alan's like, no, I'm from the north. We have to have the real gravy. So he leaves. That might not be true. It sounds so it, plausible that I'm just going to believe it. It's what I believe and will continue to believe, even if you prove me wrong. So the Alan's Fried Chicken, which has, in, in some ways, the, the OG original KFC gravy from his era, which mm. I'll tell you now, and I'm saying this as a, 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 a guy who's been veggie for years, that gravy is incredible. That gravy is incredible. I've only ever met one person who was not hot on that gravy. They said it had too much nutmeg. Fair enough, if you don't like nutmeg. But there, there's, there's a bit of nutmeg in there. But... Yeah, watch out. Watch out. Warning. <laughs> I'm just, that's my one flag is if you don't like nutmeg, yeah. there's a little bit in there. So I'm just putting, I don't want to screw you over. But if you generally like a quality gravy, th this gravy is incredible. I I caught one of my ex-girlfriends drinking it from the tub. That is, like, was she like that normally? No, that was, was the, unusual behavior. Gravy. That was unusual <laughs> behavior. Um, and <laughs> Could have just been characterizing this person. <laughs> And uh, it's just it, what she was like. It's incredible. And that is the Alan's fried, Alan's fried chicken used to be open late. So after a gig, you'd hit that. But Alan's fried chicken, other stuff other than the gravy is so hit or miss that it's just not worth it. And then next to Alan's fried chicken in Fallowfield in Manchester on the same road, a couple of minutes away is Chicken King. Now Chicken King, classic, you know, sort of independent chicken shop. Their chicken, the gravy is bad. Their chicken is unreal. 
So here's the play. Mix and match. You listen, buddy. You go to Chicken King. You put your chicken order in. While it's cooking, you pop down to Allen's. You buy a pound. You get, give them a quid. It depends how much you want. You give them 50p, give them a quid. You get a tub of the gravy. They will find this strange. No matter, even if you do it more than once, arguably they find it more strange every time you do it. Do it. Who cares? Right? The gravy's so good. Their chicken's hit or miss. While you're in there, have a little look at the story about Alan and the Colonel. Go back to Chicken King, walk in, conceal the fact that you've got a thing from a nearby competitor chicken shop. They are going to find that strange. They may comment on it. Remain strong. You get your Chicken King chicken, which is reliable quality chicken, and you combine the two. Incredible. Now, I believed myself to be a pioneer of this activity. Having talked about this comes up in like post-gig food, I found two other comedians who had independently come up with this system. Wow. Sam Gore and Phil Ellis. Veterans. Vets. Uh, it, it's incredible. That grave is incredible. But like, do you know what I mean? You're not having a salad at 1am. <laughs> mm. And something's happened like culturally where that's unacceptable to even think about. <laughs> you know, I get it with breakfast. Right. I get that there's a different palate uh-huh. necessary for your body at breakfast. Yeah. But at night, I don't think there is a certain kind of food that's helpful to your body more. <laughs> but culturally, you have to eat like rancid meat. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and then you start going like, would I think this was delicious if I was ordering it at 6 p.m. and not after like a three and a half hour drive? Yeah. Would I get this at a lunch? at like just 2 p.m. in between doing work and just thinking about my life. (laughs) Would I stop a task, eat this particular meal, and then resume a task that required concentration? Yeah. And I as well, like when it's not like I found out about animal suffering and then became a veggie. It's like I knew all that information still at the time, but when you're like hungry, you know, wherever these places are getting their chicken from, it's like chicken hell. And you just do not fucking care. You do not care about the conditions of the chicken. You don't care about the conditions of the workers in the chicken factory or in the, you know, restaurant or whatever, the takeout. You just fucking want food. Yeah, there's some kind of like ethical version of the marshmallow test. Mm. And on the way back from a gig, you would fail that and you'd fail the normal marshmallow test. You would just eat the one marshmallow. (laughs) Uh, Didn't something come out recently that like completely changed how people see the marshmallow test? (laughs) <laughs> new marshmallow test just dropped like it doesn't me- measure self-control i'm not it remembering measures how much you like marshmallows no no it doesn't men- measure self-control and it doesn't measure anything about marshmallows it measures your trust for adults because if you're told oh i'll give you one i'll give you this marshmallow you can see now or i'll give you x amount later basically when you go oh, i'll give you this amount later it you can because you can see that marshmallow and they're offering it here and there but your trust for adults you'll be like well i can see this one now they're probably bullshitting me. Let's have this so I, uh, so I at least get something. So how does it skew? Because like you're probably not old enough at that point to like be socialised a certain way. It probably just measures how good your parents are at like rem- give uh, keeping their word. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, because you have to measure because make promises what? to get short term results from their kids, and then they don't actually follow up on it. It might just measure whether your parents do that strategy. I think do we trust our parents is a whole other episode of Mando's, but the. the um, <laughs> The instant satisfaction and then like predictable shame and feeling. You know you're not going to feel good within 10 minutes of eating this stuff. You know that. And you know that while you're Mm. doing it. And you still do it. When you're completely aware that what you're doing is fucked, 
and then you still do it. Yeah, but isn't that like all of us all the time? Like, I feel like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know how everyone talks about like, oh, I hate my job and I've got imposter syndrome and like everyone is doing things that are killing themselves all the time. Everyone is killing themselves every day. Oh, yeah, but with your job, you don't enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you know your work's fucked. You know your landlord's exploiting. You know the planet's dying from climate change. Like, you know all these things and they're depressing, right? But in that moment, when you're smash, smashing down a Big Mac, you know all those things, you know all these things, and you also go like, oh, yes. Like, that's that's what you're saying when you're eating it. You, well, you're not, you might be saying, oh, yes, fuck. And like, you, you've, you're like, you feel incredible. And you know you are immediately going to feel bad, and you're, but you still feel incredible. You're right. It's different from the cognitive dissonance of just trying to exist under late capitalism because for most of those other things you're not going oh yeah this is good and yeah. you're also looking at you're looking at the other person who's also eating it and going it's good isn't it you know like a good <laughs> meal where you can't keep it to yourself that it's yeah. good you have to look at the other person and then you have to stop eating it just for long enough to be like mm, this is good <laughs> and, and go, you both know you both know you're going to feel fucked mm. And I will even, I've said that. Join, I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. I'm going to feel bad in a minute. And you're like, yeah, don't mm. feel bad now, though. <laughs> Do you mm. want another bit? And it's terrible on the journey back, like eating a terrible meal mm. and then letting the letting the horribleness send you straight to sleep. <laughs> you know, you can Pepsi hack your way out your of blood. the consequences. I can't. Do you know I'm, I'm banned? We, I'm banned from Pepsi now. I, yeah. I, we call it the forbidden brown drink, I, yeah, and I'm not allowed stuff. to touch it. It sends me absolutely glonko. Yeah, same. Yeah, I get glonked on Pepsi. Yeah, we ordered something the other day, and it came with some Pepsi, and I'm like, yeah, "Well, it's come it with the Pepsi room. now." No, put it in another room. And then I went. It 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 sent me weird for three days. <laughs> sent me weird. I can't even pin down. Weird how? It just sent me weird. Pepped. I was a different guy. I feel like if the Pepsi guy committed a crime, you couldn't try me as I am now. <laughs> Different guy, it sent me weird. <laughs> I think fewer people cook than ever. Cooking is going down. Is it? Is it not? Surely cooking's going down. Sorry, I just believe it without looking up. I cook. Do you cook? Oh, yeah, but I don't think we're representative of the population. Who does, who's not cooking? Do you think there's people that are just pure wall-to-wall -wall Uber Eats? How have they got the money to do that? YouGov says in 2017 that one in eight Brits avoid cooking from scratch. That can't have been true 50 years ago. Where is the line that's, that's cooking? Because cooking from scratch could mean something very specific. Because what does from scratch mean? You hunt and kill the animal yourself. In 2018, the Independent reported that one in four British people can only cook three recipes. Fuck! <laughs> that so tells me... Cooking literacy is diminishing. And I'm going to define cooking. Cooking in general requires all the bits of like a traditional kitchen. You need oven, uh -huh. you need hobs, you need more than the microwave. Uh -huh. I worry, I think there's a trend that cooking right. is going down. And I think what we're going to see, I want to give a Mando's prediction here. I'll put my name okay. on this. Oh, shit. We're going to see more affordable housing when it is built with no kitchen that locks people out, that people are going to end up having to buy because it's cheaper and then they can't cook. They're already building co-living spaces where you buy or rent an apartment, but the apartment doesn't have a kitchen and you have to share a big kitchen with everyone else. That already exists, but I think we're going to find small individual flats, like those shipping, Mayersk shipping container <laughs> yeah, conversions, yeah, yeah. where there's no kitchen and it's too inconvenient to plumb in all the stuff for a kitchen anyway. But then that's going to change the fabric of our relationship with food 
if ever in the future the means to cook starts becoming less normalised. At the moment, I think we're lucky because we all live, especially in the north, mm. a lot of us live in like the run-down flats that like the old mill-working families have to be in. Yeah. And you've got to put a kitchen in it, even though they're so cramped, because yeah. if there's no kitchen, they can't eat. And we're sort of lucky for that because if they knocked them all down and built new homes, there would be an option these days to turn them into smaller flats without kitchens. And I think... One day we'll see that. I want to retweet this episode in future and be like, I said it, I said it. Now. We've already hit. There's no living room because it's been converted into the bedroom yeah. by the landlord. And the landlord's going, I've already split the bedrooms into two and I've made the living room into a bedroom. What next? And he's looking at the kitchen. He's going, I don't need a bloody kitchen. That's that. Let's cook. Yeah. yeah. Just get knocked that through, put a bedroom in there. And I think with so few people cooking, I think there would be people who support it. I think there would be loads. Of, I can see some policy wonkish kind of people being like, this is actually a huge benefit for the poor. Because yeah. then they don't need to be spending extra rent and extra floor space on wow. this room they don't use. We can decide what they eat. A boiled egg every day. It's wrapped up in a little baggie. And it's poked through the keyhole until it's scrambled. Yeah, it's those really fucked um, uh, children's dinners that whatever that private company provided. Yeah. Where it's all like a quarter of a tomato in cling film. Yeah, a drawing of a Twix wrapped in a worm. (laughs) I will subscribe to your prediction, but I also want to know what the three meals are. So it's going to be bolognese. Yeah. What are the other two? A baked potato. I don't know what the independence like standard for cooking is. I think think I'm going to rule out based on it being the independent that beans on toast doesn't count. Well, this is my thing of like, where is the line of cooking? Oh, actually, I I've, I brought it back up, but I can yeah. tell you what the three meals are. Spag bowl, you got it. Beans right. on toast does count. And then bangers and mash, which actually, mash right. is involved. Mash is involved. Right. Yeah, you could live on those three things. I'm not making a, a judgment on it. I just yeah, think yeah. there's a trend that's happening. And, and of course, it's not people just becoming lazy or willing to cook. I think it's because everyone is doing the job of three to four people <laughs> and yeah. no one has time. Right? Cooking, yeah, yeah, cooking yeah. is nice and it's relaxing and it's almost meditative. I enjoy cooking for sealing myself off mm, for making mm. a meal. And that's why it has, has to go. That's why it doesn't have a place in the workday anymore. That can be shaved off. <laughs> yeah, so it's not... now it's you the, could get something in. It's the dual pressure of not just landlord going, well, what, where can I get an extra bedroom in? It's also your employer going, going where, where can we make these people work more or consume products more? Yeah. yeah. And of course, on the other side, the people who are pushing the consumerism uh-huh. of like easy consumable food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to stop Domino's texting my phone. I don't know how to stop telling them every Tuesday. However, I've never been texted by a grocer in my life. <laughs> a, a grocer Wouldn't that be amazing? Has never text me. Yeah, we got some. We got some kumquats in. Yeah. The new sweet potatoes are here. Here's a picture. And do you know what? I'd love that. Yeah, I love that. The new sweet. I work with the fruit and veg co-op, yeah. and they are as like as modern as I've seen something like that. Uh-huh. It's still miles away from Domino's texting me every week. What's going on? Well, that's just. It's money again, isn't it? Money for those kinds of systems because it seems like a simple thing, but other priorities, other stuff they've got to be doing. They don't have the staff, they don't have the tech. Yeah. Like it's all done. It's it's just done by some people who work in a fruit and veg warehouse. Yeah. It's not a multinational <laughs> pizza conglomerate. But that's what I mean. They're pushing, oh, just go and get this easy food. Your work is extending, you know, the amount of stuff you've got to do so you're more tired mm. it's a perfect storm for people not cooking you know making food for yourself making food for someone else is really good 
just feels good on the but on the flip side if you've just done a day at work and then you've got your kids going nuts at you and you're really stressed out you know that 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 could be horrible and shortcut hacks to get around that and you're told incessantly to do it you're told mm. incessantly to do it you know there was a brief window of like scorning the working class for not cooking but that that amount of scorn is minuscule compared to the amount of like adverts flyers they push takeaway yeah. stuff through your letterbox there is endless advertisement for easy to consume food for most fuck thing i've seen is frozen jacket potato mm. <laughs> it's like and, and, what <laughs> and then the last piece of the puzzle is like what the interior of a shop actually looks like yes so like we're not talking about the greengrocers we're not talking about like the interior of a takeaway we're talking about what an actual normal tesco sainsbury's morrison's asda whoever you go in what does that look like straight away you you always start off by like there's some groceries visible but they're tucked well they fuck fuck so they they initially put the fruit and veg so you get flowers and then you get fruit and veg so you go like oh and then that impression of because you've seen bananas and a tomato and a bouquet of flowers you're like everything in here is is healthy and then equidistant from that at the other end of the shop is the bakery because that's you can't put them both together because they'd counteract each other's effects because they're both Mm -hmm. too powerful the bakery's at the other end because the smell of bread makes you more hungry and makes you spend more so that's why supermarkets have bakeries and they're they'll be at the other end of the shop to to boost you know they they imagine they both have an area of effect in video game speak so you don't want them overlapping so you got the you got the groceries at the front and they are they are they are centered at the start of the shopping experience and then it's all the you know shit but then think of the amount of resources you know people say capitalism is efficient think of all of the people make not only making like adverts for like bullshit products like frozen jacket potatoes but also the packaging mm-hmm. and like the people who work out what, what to put at eye level how every two weeks we slightly shuffle things around the shop to to center certain products and and not others just how immensely wasteful that is and never mind the like straight up waste of putting stuff in wheelie bins chucking rat poison on it to stop homeless yeah. people getting it like the the one that really gets me is the fish counter which has ice underneath fresh fish yeah and then a fucking bo- a hot bulb to light it up to make it look shiny and nice so you want mm. it shops are hostile architecture in like <laughs> yeah. every sense of the word they're bad vibes and you know, we mentioned like fruit and veg and flowers being at the beginning. I really want to make the case that that is a psyop. It is, yeah. If you want to look at what they want you to buy, it's not where you come in. Mm. It's what is where you have to go through. It's the mm. stuff in the middle. So in my local shop, and I think in a lot of shops, you can't get to the milk without going past the bakery section. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that time and time again. You always need milk but you have to go through the bakery section of goodies. Mm. There are chocolates and sweets while you queue up for the counter. It's so hostile in a shop. I just hate being in there. Like this last year has been the worst time to be in a shop. It's fucking dreadful. My glasses are steamed the whole time now. It's exacerbated. I go in blur mode. I take the glasses off to avoid the Mm. steam because the steam's going to add blur anyway. So I take the hit and I go pure hunt mode, shop predator. That sounds bad. (laughs) <laughs> where i just target you're hunting for, for products yeah, it's, yeah. It's I, t- I, I know exactly what i want and i will make a beeline for precisely those things but and th- i was already like this pre-covid but now when it's like there's people who are a danger to my health and i also you know my presence is a danger to the workers in there i'm like i'm going to spend as little time in here as possible and i'm going to take the most efficient and safest route 
to each thing I want. I'm going to get it, get out. And that is the joy in shopping for me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's over. I did it efficiently. Supermarket, you're right, the supermarkets is like architecturally, they are by design hostile. Like it's a th- you're going for a thing you need. They are not helping you do that. <laughs> Yeah, and the shops are hostile architecture designed to sell certain kinds of product. They want to sell easy, consumable food. They want to sell meal deals. They want to push the snack food, and they want to push the stuff that you can pick up, put in the oven, and just take out and eat. That's what they want to push front and centre, and stuff that you actually need to use to cook, to mm. use to design a meal of your own creation. That is tucked into the far edges, the corners, the far away aisles, under the knowledge that people that want them are going to go and find them anyway. But anyone who's anyway susceptible or tired or stressed, which the shop is designed to make you stressed, they're just going to pick that up. And that creates this perfect storm where cooking is going to go and kitchens are going to go with them. (laughs) Everything will be delivered through a pipe. Children won't know the word kitchen. They'll just be in a room that for some reason is tiled and cold. (laughs) (laughs) And Tesco will be making bank somehow. Big bank. Yeah, you go there for the sink. <laughs> Popping a coin, you get to use a sink. So, do you know what I have very mixed feelings about? The concept of a restaurant. There's elements of restaurants that I like. Like, I love eating food that I can't cook myself, or at least not well. You know, like pizza in a big fire oven, or like baklava, or onion bhajis, or like really good sushi. You're never going to reach the level at someone who just does that all day. But then on the flip side, the restaurant industry and how people who work in restaurants are treated by their bosses on one hand and customers on the other is monument. And I'm not just talking about Mackey's, I'm talking about like... Oh yeah, even a nice restaurant is bonk, like, bel- I'd say ballistic round the back. Like <laughs> yeah. A posh... Nuclear. Even a posh place. Like there's a reason that Gordon Ramsay is like the iconic chef uh-huh. because he represents the screaming that is endemic in the system <laughs> of the food industry. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's weird as well because you've got chef who... All of like the default chef is Gordon Ramsay anger guy. Uh, and that is, you know, like if you talk to anyone who knows about chefs, that that's like a stereotype that is vindicated by reality <laughs> more often than not. And on the other side, you've got uh, service staff who are structurally and financially motivated by tips and things like that to be like very, very nice to people who might be being horrible to them. I once worked in a cafe where every Tuesday and Thursday an old lady would come in and order a cup of hot water and two bowls. And she sat down, she'd take two Weetabix wrapped in tissue from a handbag, empty them into one bowl and add some of the hot water. Then she'd put her own tea bag into the remainder of the hot water in the cup. Then she'd come back to the counter, get about a dozen vinegar sachets, empty them out into the other bowl and soak her feet in it while she finished her meal. I was working as a waiter for a promo for a blue gin company in a tiny little gallery in London and we were serving oysters covered in blue glitter which we had to carry on long troughs made of perspex and filled with blue ice. Uh, While I was turning around an oyster fell off the back end of my trough into a guest handbag. Uh, I moved on. So when I was like 15 I worked in this cafe, it was like, you know, a proper little greasy spoon cafe. And there was this regular called John who was there every day from like opening to close. And he would just give the staff grief all day long. And he would sit next to the staff table, butting our conversations and everything. He was really unpleasant. And one day I gave him his cheese toast he had ordered and he said I hadn't done it properly. So he threw his dandruff at me. In the late 90s, I used to work at McDonald's. One day before shift, I walked in to the backyard in the restaurant 
for a cigarette. And what confronted me stayed with me for the rest of my life and will do till my dying day. Because there in the backyard, in full clown costume, was Peter Simon, the ex-90s TV presenter, in full Ronald McDonald garb. He was there to host a children's party, as he often did. As I smoked my cigarette, Peter Simon finished his, and he looked at me dead in the eye, threw his cigarette butt on the floor, stamped it out with his fucking clown shoe and said, I fucking hate kids, me. One summer, I was waiting tables in a small Spanish restaurant. We had a party of about six or seven people in, which meant that they were the largest party that night, um, and so we were constantly kind of topping things up and changing plates for them. And a couple hours into the meal, slightly after they should have already freed up the tables anyway, uh, I brought over another bottle of Carver to top everybody up, and the lady who had booked the table saw me, turned around, and properly started to kick off, because I had dared bring this subpar sparkling wine carver to the table when she and her friends only ever drank Prosecco. Never mind the fact that because we were a Spanish restaurant, we only served carver, and she and her friends had already been drinking it all night. So on my last ever shift being a waiter, um, I had to do a final check of the toilets, and to my horror, I found in the ladies' toilets that someone had looked at the toilet, looked at the toilet bowl, rejected the toilet bowl in favour of shitting in the candle that was placed on top of the cistern. And not only had they done that, they then put it back where they found it uh, for, me to, for me to retrieve. So everyone's always motivated by the ambiance, even if you're not getting tips. Yeah, yeah. You need to, like, just one person kicking off means you won't get other custom, which means the place will have a bad exactly. evening, like one person. Do you know, there's this um, there's this little street in Belgium, which mm. is like the, all the posh restaurants mm-hmm, are all on mm-hmm. this one place. And at the end, there's a fish place where the king likes to eat. Uh, it's got this black bean. <laughs> a the king likes to eat fish here, and, and yeah. this is his seat. And all along the way... Because it's like so, mm. Belgium doesn't really have any like tourist zones. It only really in Brussels. It just has like there's a place called Le Grand Place, which right. is just the big place. That's like the the clo- and you got the little pissing baby. That's like Belgium's <laughs> tourism <laughs> in a nutshell. And so I, this I one also street, want the, the Grand Place to be the fish restaurant as well. Oh, the Grand Place for that would be very good. Uh, wouldn't That's what it'd be called in England. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wouldn't pass all the language laws. I'm afraid you probably can't, because of Belgium's very strict language yeah, laws, yeah, probably yeah. can't have a pun that only works in one language because it would be deemed <laughs> <laughs> sectarian. <laughs> um, Do you know, side note before we carry on, I, I, one of the things I love about British takeaways is that at some point someone did the pun Codfather and then mm-hmm. someone looked at that and went, oh yeah, Godfather. And then there's places that are straight up just called like Goodfellas because they're like, yeah, that's a gangster movie. And you're like, whoa, whoa, you've missed a... You've missed a few steps here. What's you've just called your kebabby Goodfellas? It's like a game of telephone where like the meaning slowly drifts away. Yeah. There's one in Hull called Scarface that just has a picture of <laughs> Al Pacino on it. Someone's come late to the party and they're like, "We just called Chippies after gangster films." Is that not <laughs> the trend? Is that not the trend here? There's a place in Birmingham that I used to like called Pizza Hack. Yeah, and I'm like, it sounds a bit like Hut, but like, what are you going for there? Pizza Hack. <laughs> Pizza Hack. <laughs> What? what does that mean? What, what does that? that mean? Yeah, it's, it sounds either like you're physically going to slice them with an axe, which, let's be honest, that would be a selling point. 
If you could see it, if you could see it. Yeah, you wouldn't order takeout, but if you could yeah. see it. So the king goes to this fish place. <laughs> well, well remembered. But the little side street, it's a proper little European mm. side, cobbled side street. But because it's like the, this restaurant area, there are like servers who stand outside the restaurant and they will engage you in conversation. Like most of the time, no one's in them. And the moment they can get someone sat outside mm. to the second potential patron, mm. they look down the street and they go, all of these are empty. Oh, except for that one. And then that one will start getting all the customers. So whoever gets the first customer sort of will win the day. Wow. So that you've got like six restaurateurs talking directly to you. When you do like acquiesce to one of them, mm. you get to watch them all do all their pitches and they become the entertainment for the meal. <laughs> and these guys can speak like 12 languages. The business model of uh, restaurants is weird because it's got this like ebb and flow of it. will have these like ruthlessly horrific peaks where everyone there is like the most stressed they've been. And then it will ha- might have horrible. Yeah, yeah these lulls, you- which is what tipping is really about. Because tipping is like you can get away with putting the wage less. So when it's the lull, the 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 boss loses a bit less money. The staff are getting some of the money from the peak, but it basically insulates them and turns the staff into like little mini entrepreneurs as well. It's like a means of control. So I've had two food jobs, but I was always around the back. Yeah, so I never yeah, yeah, got yeah. to engage with tipping. I don't. If it's this bad, like I don't quite understand. Tipping only goes to like the tip of the iceberg of the production uh-huh. when you're like round the back chopping up vegetables none of that tip go, no one comes around and goes here's your tip the version of this that you get in the uk is like they pool the tip and then distribute the tip sometimes not exclusively with waiting stuff but with all with everyone i thought and the that, version in the uk is that the manager takes all the tips but you're not allowed to tell the well customers. yeah that's a big one is like management taking a cut which is why you know it can obviously still happen if you pay cash, but try to avoid paying the fucking on card for stuff because then that's almost definitely going to the manager. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in America, they have a thing where there's like secondary tipping where the waiting staff are expected to tip other aspects of the staff, like the bus boys, for example, after the shift right. is done, which is which is really completely fucked in terms of the pushing the like entrepreneurial behavior onto the waiting staff and like divide and conquering the staff. I've worked in a gastropub as a teenager. Yeah. yeah. And then... In my 20s, I worked in a cafe for a while, but both times in the back. Highlights? I I can give you... My only anecdote, I think, is how I got sacked from... It was like my first proper job when I was a teenager. I I started off as like a pot wash, and then I worked my way up to like basic food prep that now, in retrospect, now that I've worked as an adult in a a kitchen environment, I wasn't trained in, and I almost certainly broke hygiene regs because no one... They just gave the pot wash food prep stuff to do but I wasn't talked through hygiene, allergies, anything. So I'm sure I broke the law just by me doing it. But then we had this maitre d' who was a full-on Ramo head. This was like a reasonably posh pub round the front, but round the back it was just kids from the community who needed extra money, so it didn't have the same vibe. Uh, and the maitre d' would go like ballistic mode, especially mm. on like Friday evenings. And I think mm. it was a Friday evening. And he like appended to the end of a rant, like he saw like a stain on the floor and he said, and you're going to mop this up right now. And I said, okay, just need to do it. And he said, no, no, just need to. You're <laughs> going to mop it up this instant. And Fucking then stormed hell. out. And I said, oh, okay, fine. So I grabbed the mop. I mopped it up instantly, yeah. right? Mopped up the whole stain, wrung out the thing and then picked up the wet floor sign, <gasps> turned around like 180, turned around back to what I'd mopped and the maitre d' was flat out on the floor because he stormed out of the room and then stormed back in from the same door 
and then slips on the water that I had just mopped because he told me to mop it instantly. And he had twisted his ankle and I got sacked the next day. Oh my God. Yeah. And he said, and this is true, you, you weren't making any friends. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't making any friends, get sacked. And they didn't give me my last pay. I didn't, they didn't pay me for my last bit. <sighs> I walked out of a, a cafe job after like an hour. This is when I was like 14. Um, mm-hmm. And here's what, here's what I saw. I saw someone come into the kitchen, drop an ashtray into a big pan of beans what okay what maliciously or accidentally 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 right and then obviously everyone was like oh shit fuck 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 we've got a big you know we need the beans the breakfast rush is going to be on this is all the beans we've got and they were like and was it like ashen this ashtray it wasn't like clean out for the day it was was covered in it was like yesterday's ashtray and they were cleaning it in the morning for whatever reason (laughs) right so it was fully loaded Big panic, big panic, right? And then whoever was in charge of it, you know, it was like a calf, so the kitchen wasn't like, uh, chef feels like a stretch for what was happening back there. You know, there's a lot of reheating of pre-made things going on, but the beans were in a pan, right? The be- There's a big pan of beans, like the biggest pan you can imagine going on a hob, full of beans, now with this ash, and they just stirred it in. They just stirred it in. And they fished Ooh. out the butts and... uh just served it, and it, it, I, I had to. I just, I just left because it was, because it was so fucked, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And also, <laughs> my auntie, my auntie was somehow involved in running the place. So, I, I basically said what I'd seen to my mum, but then my mum was like, "Oh well, you can't, you can't get the other people working there," and because they were all just like young kids as well. But also, my auntie had like nepotismed me a job, and then I walked mm. out after an hour. So we had to come up with some like reason of why I'd done it. So we had to create this thing where I have a phobia of beans, which I had to maintain for like a what? decade to maintain for like family politics reasons. Because they couldn't see you not only eat beans but not be scared of beans. <laughs> Did you ever actually have to? What did you have to no, do? No, I never to had maintain? to perform the bean bean phobia, but I had to be like, yeah, I really hate beans. <laughs> yeah, it was, to to it was pretty easy to maintain. It was pretty easy to maintain, but but it no was also like it. such a wild and strange thing. It would be brought up by them as a thing of like, oh, do you remember when you quit you quit that job because of you don't like beans as like a oh, funny because thing? Because it's that they're insane. not bringing up as an older uh-huh. generation to be like, this is mad. Uh-huh. You're mad, and I'm gonna yeah. bring up a story of you being mad. And you have to be like, actually, we're bringing up a story about how you've hired people to poison strangers. <laughs> yeah, you're they're so like, it's like, well, your restaurant is whatever. They're so afraid of you flipping out because you wouldn't have the beans on that they just panic yeah. stir them in. It must reflect in some way, like her managerial style, <laughs> that they were like, we just have to poison people. We just have to poison. <laughs> There's no other excuse. Do you know, you hear so many horror stories about like, Loads of food that you get from places where you can't see how it's made. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. contaminated. Oh, yeah. And it's just part of life. And like, you know, with us perhaps um, deregulating our food sector even further to be Bring to have more on. trade deals with America, yeah. we're going to be eating a lot more weird stuff. But I've always had this fear, and the fear is not eating the maggots and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the rodent poo. The fear is that one day they like tidy up all my favourite foods and they, they do a big investigation, they remove all the contaminants. 
And the next day I eat it and I'm like, I don't like this now. Well, the fear is learning that I enjoy that, that I enjoy eating beetle legs. (laughs) rodent eyes yeah and rat, i'm like i'm like a shakespearean nails. witch mm. <laughs> <laughs> i love macabre droppings <laughs> that's my snack <laughs> i love formaldehyde yeah. <laughs> i love the blue chemicals the best <laughs> although you, actually during the e-number scare that's something that i believed explicitly and still do do you think restaurants as a concept, is like any way redeemable? Like, do you think there's any way they could like continue in a, any similar form as they exist now, like after the revolution or whatever? Because they're so. Yeah, of they're so, Do you think? Because they're so. They're so so linked. This is why I say I have mixed feelings about them. Because they're so so linked to like capitalism. Because the restaurants only came into existence in like the seventeen late seventeen hundreds. Because uh, they developed to cater to the middle class. The, the capitalist class explicitly because the aristocrats don't need restaurants because they've got like servants in their houses, mm. right? Um, and then, you know, the peasant class doesn't need restaurants because they just cook their food in their peasant house that they farmed from the land there, right? So it's it's like an explicit restaurants develop with capitalism. You know, like I said, the kind of domination from the boss and the customer and like making a thing. So there was domination already, the relationship between like the aristocrat and the servants and the relationships in the home of like patriarchy. And that's like relationships of domination. Now those same systems have been outsourced, they've been privatized and the domination is coming from the boss and the customer. And that's that's restaurants. So it becomes a capitalist form of uh, control rather than uh, one based on kind of the aristocracy or the patriarchal family. And then just to take it up to the modern day and work out why they feel so ingrained is because people just don't have the resources to make a sufficient amount of meals per day based on the amount of time they have when yeah. they're not working and how much energy they have left. Like the idea that I have to would then living a normal week where I've got to cook all of my meals and none of them come like ready prepared, bought in a way that I can just put in my mouth from a shop or I go out to get something. Mm. That seems scary to me because I am tired every day. I wake up tired and I go to sleep wide awake. <laughs> Same, yeah. I love my hob time. Yeah, yeah. I love seeing the hobs turn off. Yeah. I love hovering my hand over them because no rented property have a kind of hob that is clear when it won't burn you. <laughs> I love the mystery of the hobs. I love the mystery of the oven light turning off to say it's hit the correct temperature, but I have now bought an oven thermometer and it says something wildly different. Yeah. I love the mystery of trying to cook. I like cooking. I, I do like it, but it is, it can be exhausting. And it's more so exhausting, you know, like if you think of the links between historically of, um, well, and still now, uh, the patriarchy and like women doing the cooking. Home cooking, you know, because you have this idea of like, you know, they're going to get rid of the kitchens. But if we flip it and say like, maybe getting rid of the kitchens is good. You know, like if you flip it and go, okay, restaurants can have, have problems, but communal kitchens, socialized food preparation could be quite Mm. liberating, could be quite good. On the one hand, it's like, you know, we talk about flats, getting rid of kitchens internal and just having shared cooking space and how that's that's fucked and that's kind of reducing people's space they have to themselves. But it's because it's happening under the auspices of capitalism and landlords. Like, I think you could have socialised food prep and and shared kitchens in in a way that's good that doesn't have the fucked things about restaurants i don't think they'd necessarily be called restaurants but i think it could be good this is it i think you know you can't turn back and go you just make everything in your house again because yeah the future without capitalism can't seem worse and more peasant based than what we have now because we won't want it 
But shout out in Sheffield to like Food Hall, which mm. is a socialised mm. food space. It's got big graffiti on the side talking about a national food service. You can go in. You can rock up to eat. You can also rock up to cook. Mm. And they go, mm. you, comp- you here's what we got. Do you want to cook something? You don't get paid for it, but you can also eat as well. You, yeah. cook, you can eat. I mean, it does mean like it's probably going to be some. You need some kind of like system to make sure it's not hit or miss poison. But <laughs> you can do that. You, know, you, yeah, you yeah. can do that. Unless That's the poison not tastes good. Oh, we took the poison out. No one wants. No one's ordering that anymore. We put a bit of the poison now with poison reintroduced. Big, <laughs> big sign outside. We got some of that fancy French poison. You're going to love it. You'll be dead in minutes. <laughs> Got some beans. <laughs> Hope you like ash. <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean with additional music from Ludwig van Beethoven. For the Restaurant Worker Horror Story compilation, we want to give special thanks to, in order of appearance, Karen Finch, Twitter handle Finchy Poos, Duncan, Twitter handle Fortunes for Fun, Ashley Booth, Twitter handle GWiz52, Tom King, Twitter handle It's Tom King, Clementine, Twitter handle CLOV underscore A, and Hannah Platt, Twitter handle Hannah the Platt. Solidarity with all food industry workers out there, and thank you for listening. Thanks also to those of you who support us on Patreon or share episodes on social media. We appreciate it. Hope everyone's staying safe and feeling okay. See you next time. <laughs>